Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today for our podcast. We are today in chapter 6 of Mark, verses 1 through 13, and there's a couple of really different stories going on, and I think Alan, will, as he'll tell us, that, that these are presented differently in a different go- in a gift, different synoptics in particular. So, But let's just have him jump in and, and uh, tell us about this. This, this is both uh, the sending out of the, the 12 and also this teaching in, in his hometown. Thanks, Christy. Yeah. yeah. Our gospel lesson, as you said, for this week, it does combine a couple of stories. Uh, Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, uh, his hometown, and Mark's account of his sending out of the Twelve to engage in their own mission of proclaiming the gospel and healing those who are ill. And it, it presents us really with a very interesting opportunity to study two episodes that are reported in all three synoptic mm-hmm. gospels, with, but with some significant variation mm-hmm. in at least one of the three and, and mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've, I think I've mentioned in the podcast before, I don't subscribe to any one theory of, you know, Matthew was the original gospel or Mark was the original gospel. Because in my view, when you, when you really dig in and compare synoptic parallels, there are sometimes when Mark's, Mark's account seems more original, sometimes when Matthew seems more original, sometimes when Luke seems mm-hmm. more original. And so it's, you know, just one of those str- right. straightforward theories doesn't really work. And he, we're going to see how that works a little bit yeah. today. Yeah, well, and, and, and I think in this one in particular, you definitely see a, a reason that these are put together the way they are. I mean, mm-hmm. and at least in my reading of it. So I'll be curious if you have the same kind of observations. Yeah, yeah definitely. Anyway, but let's go ahead and dig in then and talk about this um, this first part with the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. Yeah, so the story of Jesus' rejection at Nazareth is reported also in Matthew 13, 53 through 58, and in Luke 4, 16 through 30. Uh, Matthew and Mark tell virtually the same story, even with extensive verbal parallels. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, interestingly, Mark's account includes details that are not found in Matthew's gospel, which may suggest that Matthew's account is more original than Mark's in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I would say that we see that some of the theological interpretation we've encountered in John's gospel in the way Luke uses this episode in his gospel. So, uh, in the in the first place, Luke takes this event, which is sort of in the middle of the Galilean ministry in in Matthew and Mark, and puts it as the very first yeah. event yeah. of Jesus' right. ministry. So he takes it out of sort of out of order right. and puts it mm-hmm. right up front. Um, that seems to suggest that that Luke sees this as having some sort of programmatic. Um, significance for for Jesus ministry. Right. Mm-hmm. Luke also uses Isaiah sixty one one through two, along with parts of Isaiah forty two and Isaiah fifty fifty eight, as a means of providing kind of a theological framework mm-hmm. for interpreting Jesus ministry as a whole. And and you know we are we all know the quote: "The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor." And and so um, you know it seems again like that's something that we're meant to see as a as sort of a, a almost a mission statement for Jesus this is this is defining Jesus ministry now while the cause for stumbling in Matthew and Mark is Jesus wisdom and his deeds of power in Luke Jesus actually provokes the audience you don't have this you know Luke just says they were amazed they were marveling at his at the at the at what great words you know he was using but in Luke's gospel, Jesus actually provokes the audience with the quote, doctor, cure mm-hmm. yourself, and then no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he takes it further, Jesus takes it further by implying that he will not do any deeds of power mm-hmm. among them, but rather his mission would benefit the Gentiles. And he does so by reminding them of the stories of Elijah helping the widow of Zarephath, mm-hmm. which was in Sidon, right. definitely outside of Jewish territory. Uh, during the famine, and then of Elisha cleansing the Syrian general, Naaman, mm-hmm. of his leprosy, mm-hmm. and not an Israelite. And so, not surprisingly, you know, we, we think about this episode of Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, and we think of it as they tried to stone him. 
Well, Matthew and Mark say nothing about that. Right. Only Luke says that, and it's not surprising because it seems like Jesus is being rather confrontational mm-hmm. with them. Yeah, it does, it, and the way it's presented there, and, and uh, um, instead of, uh, you know, my reading on it is very different when I come to Mark. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So I'm going to let you continue on with Mark's account of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. So in Mark's account, the story begins naturally enough. It just simply says that Jesus came to his hometown and began to teach them in the synagogue on the Sabbath. You know, just, okay, this is another day in Jesus' ministry, right? Um, there's no record of the content of his teaching, but rather Mark simply concentrates on the response to Jesus' ministry in general. What is this wisdom that has been given to him, what deeds of power are being done by his hands. And so, as in Matthew's gospel, Matthew does, does pretty, has pretty much the same thing. It is Jesus' Sophia, or wisdom, and his dunamis, literally powers, or in this case, mm-hmm. probably deeds of power, that provoke what appears in Mark's gospel, I would say, to be really kind of an ambiguous response, because they're asking about the wisdom he's been given, and and it's really sort of an exclamation. What deeds of power are being mm-hmm. done by his hands? Mm-hmm. So it's something of an ambiguous response in yeah. Mark's gospel. Yeah. Now, if there is any ambiguity, then the story quickly takes a negative turn yeah. in that the audience are offended by the fact that he's a hometown boy. Um, and interestingly, Matthew's account has no ambiguity. Mm-hmm. It goes straight to the offense that they take. And in Mark's gospel, they remark, is this Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Mm -hmm. So it's their familiarity with him that causes their negative response. Interesting, um, an aside here, and I know we're not to our reformers, but Calvin actually says, this fa- my reading of this was always very well. This is a known family and a liked family, but yeah. Calvin says no. They were already despised. This really? family was was not liked. That they mm. were kind of the carpenter and their their problem. I thought that was interesting. I don't know that I there's any reason when Calvin would go there, but that was Calvin's assessment. <laughs> I, I'm a little bit baffled by that, to be honest with you. I'm uh, a little yeah. bit baffled because I, I think too. <laughs> as we go on, I think we'll see that it seems like the family belongs in the town. They have a place in the town. Exactly. And, and, and this is, there's no sense of, of being outsiders. That was my sense he too. May be, he may be sort of uh, transposing Jesus' rejection onto the family. I don't know for some reason. Well, it could be. And of course, remember he doesn't, he puts them all together, so maybe right. he's also going with with right. with Jesus's response, like it is in in Luke, like you were right. pointing out before, right. you know, something like that. Could so, be. Yeah, Could I don't know. Be. Yeah. So yeah, they remark, you know, is not this the carpenter? And and it's interesting that Matthew's account names Jesus not the carpenter, but the son of the carpenter. And so there's at least a side reference to Joseph in Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel. Mark's account lacks any reference to Joseph, which some have taken as a suggestion that maybe he had died. Although there is a significant textual variant in P45, which is a very significant um, mm. early papyrus manuscript, and some other significant Greek manuscripts um, here of this verse, Mark 6, 3, that reads, is this not, instead of, is this not the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph, it reads, is this not the son of the carpenter and no. of Mary? Um, and so apparently there were some, there were some, there was some, there were scribes who noticed that Joseph was absent and right. that, that they it, wanted to correct that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So Mark goes on to tell us then that they took offense at him because of their familiarity with him. And the Greek word is skandalizo. Um, and, and the verb in the New Testament, skandalizine, and the cognate noun, skandalon, stumbling block, refer to unbelief or really disbelief mm-hmm. with reference to Jesus in various places in the New Testament. Now, in this case, I think Mark's statement doesn't necessarily imply the kind of vehement indignation that would lead them to seek his death, as in Luke's gospel. I think it is significant that this is meant to be seen as a, as a, as a negative response. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I like the way Adela, Car- Adela Car- Collins and Harold Atridge put it in their commentary on Mark. They point out that, you know, all other instances of this verb in Mark refer to the fact that um, uh, people either fail to trust in Jesus mm-hmm. or they 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 um, refuse to trust in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they say basically it's either their familiarity with Jesus or their resentment or his new roles that prevents them from accepting his message. And in either case, basically taking offense at him, being scandalized by him, as, as it is in the Greek, mm-hmm. is the opposite of believing or trusting in him. Now, so in response then to, to the fact that they took offense to Jesus, Jesus quotes what was apparently a well-known proverb in that day. Prophets are not without honor right. except in their own town and among their own kin and in their own house. Now, in, in Matthew, it's just in their right. hometown and in their own house. So Jesus kind of emphasizes that here. And maybe Mark is kind of, again, drawing out the significance that these are his own people. Not only yeah, not yeah. only the people he, he knew when he grew, as he was growing up, but also perhaps there were like cousins, <laughs> you know, extended family, and then his own household. Right. And they were rejecting him. Uh, and so I find it, again, I find it interesting that um, there is some variation in wording among the synoptic gospels, given their usual concern to preserve the words of Jesus verbatim. Um, and, and as I said, Matthew and Mark are similar in this, except for some variations of wording and normally they really do go out of their way to preserve the words of jesus um uh word for word verbatim so in this in this setting then mark uh seems to emphasize then the rejection of jesus at the hands of i think those who would have normally been expected to provide support i mean in that day kinship ties were very strong and, and so his own hometown, his own kin, his own household, you know, these right. were people who were expected to be on your side. And they were expected to, to right. take your side right. no matter what. Right. And, and, and aside with this, Calvin actually goes too far to say that it's not only familiar, but that it may have had. Apparently he was looking at some of the church fathers who said that was specifically used in some cases against the Jews hmm. later on. I thought that was an interesting comment but um yeah this, this kind of got this uh this broad connotation for the whole kin- kinship i think that's interesting yeah it fits that right mm-hmm. right yeah kinship was very strong in 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 the the mediterranean right. world of that day right. right and and so um and i think mark is really going to further lengths so. than matthew to bring that out yeah you know, I, th- that, I agree that, that the people who should have supported him are the ones who rejected, rejected him. him. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So then as a result, Mark makes what to me is a, is a set of, it's kind of a surprising statement and he could do, do no, no deed of power, power here. Um, you know, last week we saw that a woman was able to sort of tap Jesus power, mm-hmm. which again is the word dunamis. Right. So it's, it's all deeds of power, power, you know, this is the same word, dunamis, dunamis. It's the singular versus the plural. So she was able to tap Jesus' power because she touched him with faith. This week we have an episode where the unbelief, yes. the apostia of the people in his hometown and among his own kin and in his own household resulted in the fact that he was unable. Right. And it's dunamai. Right. He was not able to work any deed of power. And again, it's dunamis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so to, to me, that's a that's a really almost astonishing statement it, about it Jesus. Again, we see, you know, to some extent how faith relates to Jesus' ability to exercise his, the, right. power, the power that was entrusted to him by God to, to affect the presence of the kingdom of God. I think it's an alarming statement because... Because we are, we think well. Because Jesus, God, is able to do anything. Right. But I think, I think it also that kind of reflects a free will sense of we can we can reject God. Right. And it, then it becomes um, the, um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work right. anymore. Right. Well, and and it's I mean it's true. We can reject God, and if we reject God, 
all of God's all of God's work work in the kingdom, you know, is for naught in our case, right? Right. right but right. but at the same time, I mean, it's just it's just kind of shocking to hear that it's, Jesus is not able to do something because the people of their people's unbelief. Right. It is. It is, and it's a little. It's it's. It, it doesn't sit well, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're like, but Jesus can do whatever Jesus wants, and I. Right. Um, we think that's the way it should think, be, right? That's, that's how it should be. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's a. It seems like a, a mental battle mm-hmm. between you know the chicken and the egg, right. which came first. Right. Is it the faith or is it Jesus's power? Well, it's both we, and. It's both and. And, and yeah. so we see. I think really we see that 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 the power, uh, the the authority and the power that Jesus has to affect the presence of the kingdom of God is only effective in a person's life when it's combined with faith. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So, um, you know, Mark, sa- Mark says he was unable to do any deed of power, and Matthew leaves it at that. But interestingly, Mark adds, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured him. So did he do deeds of power or did he not do deeds of power? Well, apparently he did a few. <laughs> and so uh, it would seem that Mark was not comfortable leaving it with the statement. Mark probably had the same kind of discomfort we did with the statement that Jesus was prevented from exercising right. his authority and his power to affect the presence of the kingdom because, you know, of their unbelief. And so I think it's almost like Mark wanted to say, yeah, you can't stop Jesus. Well, you know, and here's what I'm wondering. <laughs> you can't stop God's kingdom. The sick people, did these few sick people have faith. Of course, of course they, they, they must. That right? would have been the assumption. Exactly. Yeah. There were a few exactly. people who believed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then Mark concludes, basically, that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. And this is an interesting statement. This is like one of the few times that, that you have this, that Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. Um, you know, it seems like Jesus takes some of the some of the opposition he, he receives in stride. He even expects it, you know. Mm-hmm. But here... There's something about this situation that Jesus is amazed by it. And, and we should note again that apostia, like apistuo, the verb, is a strong word in the New Testament. It does not refer to an inability to believe, but rather a refusal to believe. Mm. So it is, it is very um, uh, intentional. It's an yeah. intentional kind of thing. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Um, it... it, it if, if any of the gospels, I, I, I think Mark is the one to say that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's his, you know, gosh, my disciples still aren't getting it. They should be getting it by mm-hmm. now. So it, I think it's that sense of my hometown of anyone that should see this. and They saw him grow up, you exactly. know. Friends that I grew up with in my hometown that I went, I started first grade with and graduated from high school with, you know, they knew me. Exactly. They're not surprised that I'm a pastor. Exactly. You know? <laughs> I know. So isn't that, is, isn't that interesting? On the other hand, it kind of reminds me on the other side of, of our kind of um, our, our psych, psyche where it's like, oh, this person, he was just the son of a carpenter. He mm-hmm. can't do, he couldn't do it. He shouldn't like be able this. to teach us. He yeah. shouldn't be able to do these amazing so, words. Yeah, yeah. Oh, almost a jealousy takes over at mm-hmm. um, at his, his ability. Mm-hmm. So... You don't know, and, and, and in a way that reflects their lack of faith, too, yes, you know. And or their refusal to or The refusal, even yeah, more. Yeah, really. It's mm-hmm. really more refusal. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not an inability. It's a refusal. It's a refusal, yeah. which is really, that really reflects on, on kind of a rejection of mm-hmm. uh, faith, which Absolutely. is a really interesting. That's the connotation of apostia and mm-hmm. apostuo in the New Testament, mm-hmm. definitely. Okay, push ahead. on to the second episode, yeah. which I think... Mark intentionally places here um, dealing with this idea of faith, but I might yeah. be wrong. That's an interesting. That's an interesting theory. We let's let's, let's, let's hold on to that while we yeah, go through it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's pull it apart. So it's clear that Mark is combining the episode of the sending of the twelve out on their mission with the episode of the rejection at Nazareth. It's that's clear mm-hmm. because. Um, both Matthew and Luke report this episode, but they do so in a different setting. Um, right. uh, Luke's account in Luke 9 um, has to be compared with the fact that Luke also recounts the ascending out of the 70 in the very next chapter, mm-hmm. Luke 10. And, and actually, some, you know, there's some verbal parallels with both. So which sending out is this in Luke's gospel, <laughs> right? It, right? Matthew and Mark only have one sending out, mm-hmm. whereas Luke has two. Now, in Matthew's case, 
I think, you know, as I mentioned before, we see Luke's theological interpretation with the rejection at Nazareth. In Matthew's case, I think we see Matthew's theological interpretation in the way he reports the story of the sending out of the 12 in Matthew 10. He turns it into a whole chapter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he turns it into a whole theology, not only of Jesus' mission, but also of the mission of his disciples after him. Much of what Mark actually reports la- later in the discourse on the coming of the Son of Man in Mark 13 is found mm-hmm. here in Matthew's gospel, mm-hmm. including the idea of being handed over to authorities, betrayed by family, and in general, the idea that the disciples' mission will meet with the same fierce opposition that Jesus' mission met. And so, you know, it seems like this is. This is a theology of mission that Mm -hmm. Matthew is developing in his gospel, not only of Jesus' mission, but also of the mission of the Mm -hmm. disciples, that Mm -hmm. they're to expect this kind of really hostility and even rejection as they go out and and carry out their, their mission. Now, one thing, one thing I want to point out is that in all three synoptic Gospels, when Jesus sends out the twelve, the verb is apostello, which, of course, is the, is the verb form from which we get the noun apostolos. Mm-hmm. And so the implication, then, is that this is the task for which right. they have been chosen. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, then, um, I actually find the fact that Mark has the sending of the 12 out in this setting, I find it a bit abrupt. Because here's the, yeah, so here's well, the okay, thing. Okay. So Jesus huh. sends the disciples okay. out. He gave them authority over unclean spirits, mm-hmm. exousia. Right. So Jesus is the one who has the exousia to, care, to, to manifest the presence of the kingdom of God through these deeds of power. So he gives them the exousia over unclean spirits. And, and, and so... Um, you know, that sort of explains how it is the disciples are going to be able to carry out this ministry. But it feels a bit abrupt to me in Mark's gospel that Jesus is already sending the disciples out to proclaim the gospel and cast out unclean spirits and heal the sick, because in Mark's gospel, they still don't have a clue who he is or what he's about. You know, I mean, you know, it, we're in Mark's gospel where right. we're the well, only person who recognizes, the only human being who recognizes that Jesus is the son of God is the, is the right. centurion at the cross, right? The, the disciples have this whole Jewish Messiah That's thing true. going on I, I, that I is totally that. different from what Jesus was about. I could see that. And yeah. so I, I, I find it a bit abrupt here. And, you know, I think maybe Mark maybe. Perhaps Mark is trying to resolve this tension by telling us that Jesus gave him his exousia. I didn't check this out, but I'm I'm pretty sure that Matthew's gospel has something like that. I don't know about Luke's gospel. Mm. So, yeah, it, it's clear that Mark combines the two. It's clear that Mark combines the two. Mm-hmm, Why mm-hmm. he does that is 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 a little bit unclear to me because yeah. because it's like. These guys, these guys don't even know how to wade in the water, and he's, right, Jesus has thrown right. them into the deep end, well, right? Well, true. That's, <laughs> that's true. And yet, I think, I guess I tied it to, you know, the few people he does heal, clearly yes, their faith, sure. and then sends out the 12. They could do these things, but it's through the faith of those. That, it, so it's, it's, it's emphasizing through, that faith of, of these others. Uh, I mean, I think, I think the implication would, would be that there was faith on the part of the others mm-hmm, that they were mm-hmm. healing. But I think the, I think the passage is pointing out the fact that Jesus gives them his exousia and that's what enables them to carry out their preaching mission and their mission of healing and casting out unclean spirits. So, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a little, a little different take, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely is paired together. Yeah. And um, why is unclear to me? Why, I must confess. I think it. <laughs> why it? It. You know. And I, I. I think there's a lot of different directions. Of course, you could. You could come at this. So um, interestingly, in Matthew's gospel, the the rejection at Nazareth comes after Matthew 13, which is his whole parables mm-hmm. of the kingdom chapter. Right. Uh, the sending out of the twelve happens before that in chapter 10. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know. We, we think that these episodes may have circulated independently, 
Mm-hmm. You know, there may have been a passion narrative. There may have been an early teaching, you know, sayings, gospel, you know, things like that. But, but you know, the, the, if you study the chronology of the synoptic gospels, right. it's very clear that there is no real, I mean, there's a basic movement from, right. from the baptism to, right. the crucifixion, to the crucifixion. And there's some right. events that right. kind of happen along right. the way that are, that track one another. But, but in terms of just the, the, the details of some of the, you know, where these episodes fit they're you know there's right. a, they're kind of all over the page they, they are yeah. they are and so I, and it, it's hard to get in mark's mind right? right we don't say i'm gonna put this here for for punch after that you know after that rejection how I, who knows yeah. right? Well, to right me to me as a reader of mark's gospel it's it's a little confusing i will say i think I think what is going on in all three synoptic gospels is when Jesus sends out the 12, there is this, and you see this in Matthew 10, very much Mm -hmm. so, there is this sense of urgency that Jesus is feeling a sense of urgency about getting the message out. Yeah, that I can see, yeah. And so the, the disciples are sort of, it's like... Jesus sends out the disciples to extend his ministry beyond what he can do, you know, on his own. I guess... What what is it about? Is it about is it about Jesus spreading his ministry? Is it about the belief of the disciples here? Um, is it about those who are coming? You know, I always go back to Mark's thing, Mark's big question, and mm-hmm. of do does this convince you um, mm-hmm. that this is the Son of God? Is this is this to show us uh, God's power? In Mark's setting, it's almost like you've got these disciples who, you know, in the words of your of your college students, are clueless. Yeah, they're clueless. They're clueless about <laughs> Jesus, right? Right. And yet Jesus, again, it's this thing about Jesus' authority. Yeah, you know? that's true. Um, uh, the woman who has faith taps into Jesus' power by touching him. Right. The people in Nazareth prevent him from exercising his power with their refusal to believe. Right, exactly. Jesus gives his authority to his clueless disciples Right to extend his ministry beyond what he could do, it's a it's an interesting well, space, you really. Know, an interesting thought here is too is um, th- this idea of who Jesus is that th- this is the power of, of God and that these disciples can go out um, given the ability and they don't have to have Jesus. There. It's kind of like a, it's almost like a. Uh, Almost like, a, okay, you've been learning, you've been watching, you've been seeing what mm-hmm. happens with people with faith, what happens people don't have faith. Let's go out on your own, and, and you don't have to have me here. Right. Um, this is about God working through you. I mean, maybe something like that. I think traditionally it's been seen as almost a training exercise mm-hmm. for the disciples, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I just find it interesting that Jesus can impart, and how did he impart his exousia to them? How did, how did that happen? I don't <laughs> <You> know. know? <laughs> We're not told. Right. We're not told. We're not told. But um, it, that's another interesting question. And, and so, but Jesus is able to impart his exousia to them, and, right. and they are able to go out and successfully proclaim and 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 right. and cast out unclean spirits and heal people. So right. it's it's an interesting. It's it's a little bit strange. It's like to me, it's a little bit like you know this story fits better in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really fit in Mark's gospel, mm-hmm. given given the take on the disciples and their lack of understanding. Right. But again, I. I guess in my take on it is maybe he wanted us to get a different emphasis from it. I think he's going back to the faith. I think we go up to the, what we looked at before, mm-hmm. the faith of the woman that touched the robe, that this power came out. That the this, fact that the there are people faith. out there who will believe that, that even, the, even the clueless disciples can, can, yeah. can uh, take uh, the kingdom and spread it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway. And yeah, yeah. So that, that could be an interesting uh, encouragement, actually, because if, if, you know, sometimes I feel clueless, and <laughs> it's nice to be able to know that maybe God can use me anyway. Right, right. So, um, so moving on then, all three synoptic gospels have something like the instructions for the journey in Mark. They're to take only the bare necessities. They're mm-hmm. to depend on the hospitality of the towns and villages. Um, and again, this would seem to highlight the urgency of the mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God to as many people as possible. And it's likely that as with Jesus' ministry, the disciples' ability to cast out unclean spirits and heal the sick would serve to validate their proclamation. So again, they needed some means to be able to validate their proclamation. Uh, At the same time, it would seem that Jesus doesn't want them to linger where they're not welcome. 
You know, he says, if any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet mm-hmm. as a testimony against them. And so, again, it seems like the, the mission of proclaiming the message is urgent. Now, the fact that they would shake the dust as a testimony against them sounds like the symbolic acts of judgment performed by the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. And a especially a close parallel is found in Nehemiah 5.13, where Nehemiah shook his cloak and said that God would shake out any who did not mm-hmm. follow his instructions. So that's a similar kind of, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. And the, the, the reformers pick up on that, actually, and... Use it almost, I, I don't want to say harsh terms, but but use it to really yeah, disregard the people. A, don't waste your time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So then at the end, then the results of the preaching mission of the 12 were reported in much the way, same way as Jesus' ministry. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Now, so the, their preaching tour... Um, is summarized in much the same way as Mark summarized Jesus' ministry, but with one notable difference. They proclaimed that all should repent. Now, both Matthew and Luke specifically indicate that the 12 proclaimed the kingdom of heaven or Mm -hmm. the kingdom of God. Mark says they proclaimed that all should repent. repent. And some read this in the light of Mark 1, 14 and 15, which is a summary of Jesus' ministry, where Jesus first says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right, right, right. Right? And so some read that this statement in that light and say that they were proclaiming the presence of the kingdom of God, and which would make some sense, because why would they proclaim that all should repent unless they were also proclaiming the presence of the kingdom? But I tend to follow one of my mentors, James Brooks, and uh, friends, if you wanted to know a true Greek scholar, I know I know Christy has a lot of, of high regard for my Greek skills. James Brooks was a true Greek scholar, and and he was I, I worked for him as a graduate assistant for three years, and he was he was truly a mentor to me. And in his his commentary on Mark, he basically says that the twelve could not understand and preach the full gospel until after the passing and the resurrection in Mark's gospel which fits the overall context of what we've seen in Mark's gospel. Mm -hmm. They don't really understand who Jesus is and what he's about until after that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so, I I mean, I think Mark intends for us to see that the 12 are, in essence, extending Jesus' ministry and and, and his with with this preaching tour, but I don't think it fits the overall context of Mark's gospel to attribute them with – that much understanding of Jesus and his message and ministry to say that they went out and preached the kingdom of God. I I, I think you're right. And that does fit with kind of some of the things we're talking about is they don't quite fully, they don't quite fully understand who they are, who he is. I mean, I I mean that this kind of makes sense. You know, as we've sort of gone through our discussion here, it, it occurs to me, I think the point of this passage is about Jesus exousia. And I think that's what we've seen in several of these passages so far. You know, we saw it last week with the with the healing of the woman. Um, you know, Jesus' power. Yeah, she's able yeah. to she's able to to benefit from Jesus' power because of her faith, even right. without him knowing about right, it. Right, right, right. Well, um, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. That's the, good... the people in Nazareth, they because of their refusal to believe, he's not able to exercise his power there, mm-hmm. except in a few cases where there probably was faith. And, and even the clueless disciples are able to go out and extend his ministry because he gave them his exousia. So, again, I think it's really as much about Jesus here as it is well, about them. Th- yeah, that, I mean, I, I think that's definitely fair, and I think it makes sense within the context of, again, Mark's gospel, Mark's yeah. gospel and Mark's big questioning. So that I do think that's a, a very... Um, good way to to see it and um now that's very different from matthew's approach i agree to the mm-hmm. sending out of the 12 exactly. very different i agree i agree and i do think there's enough I, I do think there's enough other side pieces in this that that could be different angles i think the faith mm-hmm. angle could also be picked yes. up i think the education yep. can yep. so i think there's a lot of other spaces which actually make it quite brilliant when you yep. think about it yep. um but I no I I think that's a I think that's really actually quite uh, quite thoughtful. Yeah, uh-huh. I think I think Mark found this in the tradition. He knew he had to use it, but I think Mark kind of 
you know, he knew it was important because, it, again, it is a training mission for the disciples, and so it's important for that to be there. But I think he tailors it to fit the mm-hmm. theological context of his gospel where, you know, the disciples don't really fully understand Jesus until after the death and resurrection. Yeah, yeah. And that, um, no, I think that's really, I think that's a really helpful way to, to look at it. And I suggest that everyone, as they, as they look, at least put that onto their, um, interpretive, um, yeah. interpretive well, and one thing, thought. you know, one of the most helpful tools that I've found throughout the years is a synopsis of the gospels. If you don't have a synopsis, I would recommend you get one for your, for your library because it makes it so much easier to see these unique, these unique emphases in the, mm-hmm. in the three gospels That's very when, you, true. when you have them side by side like yep. that. Yep. I agree. I agree. Well, we'll take a look at our, you know, just talking about that. We'll go back and look at our reformers who, who don't do that. <laughs> How's that sound? <laughs> okay, okay. Thanks, Christy. Yep. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to let Christy uh, lead us through a discussion of the Reformers. I will, I will mention uh, in the break, we were talking about the Reformers and, and how we kind of were, were, were maybe beating up on them a little bit. You know, they, they did great work. Uh, they had limited tools. They had some assumptions that were limiting to them. But, you know, basically, Calvin's approach was to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, and that's, that's my mm-hmm. basic approach is just to interpret scripture in light of scripture and and some of the questions that they were dealing with different than what we have today yes indeed i'm kind of laughing as we move into this because just what we were talking about as we ended this idea of having um, a synopsis of the different gospels and um what's really interesting is as we even study this with calvin he doesn't even take put this all together in fact he's looking at it through his combination of which verses are the same and in trying to interpret this as one big event as mm-hmm. reported by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you, it's very awkward. It's, it's, it's like the complete opposite of what we just talked about. If you were combining Matthew and Mark on the rejection at Nazareth, that would work. Mm-hmm. If you were combining Mark and Luke on the sending of the 12, that would work. But all three of them yeah. on both of these, well, it's so like he'll craziness. Take, he'll take the places where they're together and he's trying to make a huge chronology of Christ's right. life. He's trying to put all the pieces together. Well, that, to me, I think that fits sort of that early modern thinking of trying to be historical about mm-hmm. this. I yeah. think it was historical, and and it's kind of an early historical Jesus kind of concept, yeah. right? Yeah. But they, it, unlike the modern day concept where they're trying to maybe get rid of whatever they see as mythological, they're really trying to just make sense of who Jesus was. They're trying to make sense of this um, as, as a as a as a person as a as a biography yeah, well, too. It, yeah, it's like it's like trying to trying to take a seriously historical approach to Jesus, right? Given the tools and the assumptions they exactly. had in that early modern setting, exactly. Yeah. And of course, remind remind you as well. This is kind of also the birth of of archaeology. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it's interesting um, when you look at the 16th century and all of a sudden the rediscovery of all the things that are around them that are of ancient Greece and ancient Rome that they have ignored mm-hmm. as being old and useless and stupid for years, all of a sudden come to life of being important. Yeah. And so um, I think you see some of that in here as well. And, and it's hard for us to think of, oh, you mean part of the reason this stuff was so dilapidated and destroyed by then is because nobody cared. It's like the old stuff that people walk by, it's like junk in the backyard. You mm. know, I, it's hard to believe that when you think of an ancient Roman fortress right. as being junk in the backyard, but right. it's really how they looked at it. Wow. So until, again, you hit the 16th right. century when it becomes right. valuable again. And, of course, um, you know, when we talk about the Renaissance, it's it's really the rebirth of that kind of classical yes. learning. And it's yes. that excitement of, of what was it was Rome and Greece. And that really wasn't, consideration so much in the Middle Ages. Mm. Um, well, I guess, you know, I mean, to me, my understanding of the Middle Ages being dominated somewhat by Catholic theology was, you know, it was a matter of believing what was believed by everyone everywhere at all times. And so yeah. <laughs> yeah. anything that gives you new insight, that's not encouraged, no, right? No, not it's, at all. You, uh-uh. just, you just go with whatever the, the church tradition exactly. says, and, and you're not encouraged exactly. to, to, to discover well, and sometimes, you know, we call um, um, this early modern period, um, um, 
an age of, of such turmoil and in part not be, in part because you've got that clash right you have mm-hmm. a clash between the rediscovery um, celebrating what's old and, and keeping it all together but also there's all this new stuff coming in I mean you know we're talking about C- Christopher Columbus sailing mm-hmm. the ocean blue if you will taking the most simple one we know but 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 discovery and discovery of of species and peoples mm-hmm. and all the stuff we've never seen before we just dis- right. the, the earth is much bigger than they once thought in fact a lot of europeans as we well know were thinking it was flat not your more scholarly folks but simple folks i look out i can't see it's round therefore i think it's flat you know and so we know um that at least in the simple folks were thinking it. so we, we have a lot of clash going on so wow. Yeah, it's kind of it's a great time. Anyway, <laughs> um, I, I can't imagine why you get excited about. It. I know. Well, it's it's it is it is it's truly. I call it thick history. There's so much going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just fun to to dig through the little pieces um, that we could run into. But anyway, uh, part of this, of course, is Calvin's world. And um, so just a couple observations. I've already mentioned that the assumption of Jesus' family was despised mm. um, and and perhaps just not even worth listening to. And I, I think that is an assumption he makes. I'm not sure how he gets to it. He doesn't tell us. He just makes it. Mm. Um um, and so then that clash is that, um, that Jesus, uh, thought that the people there would listen, but they didn't. So you get that contrast. Um, and then also, uh, in some of the translations he, he was working with, he felt that the translation brothers was too narrow. So brothers and sisters, all the relatives that, that included all the relatives of Jesus, uh, which is kind of what we talked about. Yeah. Is that, so there may have been some extended yeah, family. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and he also um, recognized the prophet devoid of honor in his hometown as a proverb. It was probably familiar at the time um, to to everyone that would have heard it. So that he he, didn't, he thought that that was something that not only would have descended back into um, in, into Jesus's time, but also had made its way all the way into that contemporary period. Um, and I think it is today. I think we still say that today sometimes. Yeah, we you do. know, it's it's made it through its biblical probably piece but into the into the contemporary time um so i think i guess my take on it and maybe this is how it's emphasized me was that there was really this emphasis on faith and um as calvin on, on the faith of the believers so saying look it's the unbelief of the galileans that made jesus unable to do miracles it was the belief that allowed it to happen um and uh um, he, he says, you know, um, if, if the Lord proceeds, we do not accept the power, uh, the Lord withdraws it from us. Mm. And um, so then he's... He Interesting. Makes, yeah. Yeah. And so it, when we complain that the Lord does not help us, it is a bit of a paradox. So this is that interesting space, um, really emphasizes um, the faith that becomes such a piece of the Reformation. So it kind of takes away um, God, the miracle worker. And that that comes again, you know, God coming down, doing whatever God wants. It's, it, it requ- it's a requirement of that faith to come in there, that God doesn't come just sprinkle miracles. Um, and this becomes really important as we move through this, the rest of this, as we talk about, um, um, as we talk about the, the, the efficacy of the oil at the mm-hmm. end. So we'll get there in a minute, but that faith is the overall emphasis of this passage for, for Calvin, for Melanchthon, for um, um, really all of them. I think I read a Bootser piece in here as well, that this, mm-hmm. that this is the, the primary um, push for it. Um, another thing that they pointed out, all of them, is that they felt that the disciples were given this as a temporary, um, exousia is temporary. Yes, and um, I would agree with that. I would agree with yeah. that. This was this was a specific empowerment for this specific mission. Yeah. yeah, which I think is interesting as well because there's this this kind of this sense um, that when you get to Roman Catholic theology, that the priests are kind of given this ability that mm-hmm. that this, that all the saving grace comes through the priest. That 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 when the priests and again when we get to the oil are the ones who can affect God's grace through the oil. Right. So in a, in a sense, they're trying to say, look, this was given to the disciples for a short time, mm-hmm. um, but this isn't a lasting thing. I, I, think it, I think I would agree with that until Pentecost. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. And then they say until Pentecost when Jesus 
is gone and and the birth of the, the church comes the down how the spirit comes down them. exactly yeah. Yeah. exactly so that no that's they would also agree with that observation right there um what is super funny about this is what becomes the biggest deal about this passage for the reformers is the presence of oil and that they're allowed to take oil. Now, I thought, I mean, I had to go back and look and I'm going, oh, well, it, it is, is kind of funny because, you know, they're not supposed to take all these things, but they're, but they have oil with them. Yeah. And so they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and cured them. Yeah. And our reading all would be, oh, that's nice. But this becomes a really big deal because it becomes one of the main features uh, by it becomes one of the main features of Roman Catholic sacramental theology because mm. who do you anoint with oil those who are dying extreme unction mm-hmm. the, the seventh yes. of the seventh sacraments yes. so this little bitty thing gets pulled out really? it's a major piece that becomes the basis for extreme unction yeah well wow. one of them uh, combined with James James yes right. of course and so James, James and, 5 and 5 exactly so um it's um, this Luther addresses it and Calvin addresses it in quite a bit of detail, both of them. And Luther we visit in, of course, one of the famous tracts on the Babylonian captivity of the church, 1520 tract that really takes um, Luther into Luther the monk to Luther the reformer. Mm-hmm. Because it's with that tract and his other 1520 pieces that, um, that you see a need you see a whole shift in theology, a movement way from how one is saved in the Roman Catholic tradition to how one is saved um, in the Reformation, mm-hmm. understanding Reformation by faith alone. So again, right. our faith emphasis of this passage, which sure. is, we've seen before, um, and then also a rejection of oil as having having great power. Now, <laughs> um, so... Luther in this actually attacks all the all the pieces of the church that he felt have been additions to what the true church is. I really like to emphasize the re slash forming, reforming the church, um, or even restoring the church yes. to its ancient yes. thing. And I think we we think about it more in terms of the protest mm-hmm. of the Protestant part of it, and we think about the protest as being a against Roman Catholicism, and it's more like, no, this is really more a reform of the church. And when he writes these, it's interesting, when he writes this 1520 tract, um, he doesn't write it as somebody that is yet removed from the church. He says, he, he will refer to our sacraments mm. and our misunderstanding. Wow. and our. It's only as we get to the end of it that he's like, wait, there has there, we need a shift because this doesn't make sense. And he, he really starts to... to it divides up. It becomes necessary then to, to define, um, clarify. And he says, well, obviously the Lord's Supper and baptism, those are instituted by Christ. Those are therefore clearly sacraments of the church, but the rest of them, no. If anyone has a little bit of a claim, biblical claim, it's this one, no, mm-hmm. which is through James. But it's not an apostle who gets to determine right what a sacrament is, even though it is in here as something that is done in James, that, um, yeah. anointing with oil. And what happens in the sacramental tradition is that indeed it's, it's like the oil brings about the, the healing. So uh, Yes, of course. And, and so course. It, it becomes almost magical. Well, but that, that seems to be consistent with the Catholic uh, understanding of sacraments yeah. as, as sort of um, um, the, the means themselves of conveying grace. Yes, exactly. And so it becomes, they, they really attack that as, 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 an, as, as a sacrament. And as I said, that showing that this, is, this can actually lead to despair, um, of people. Mm. Well, what if I, and, and yeah, I would, what if I get anointed with oil and I'm not healed? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. If that's the case, isn't this kind of cruel to wait till someone's dying to anoint them with oil? I mean, in a, in a serious right. end, you right. know, these people are on the very last end, but in the Roman Catholic tradition, it's, it's of course treated much 
it, it puts you in a state of grace. Yes, I mean um, it's your it's your final it's it's your final preparation. Yeah, it keeps you um, out of out of hell for a, a bit. Well, um, yeah, and, but the and the idea is you die in a state of grace absolutely. because you're anointed with the oil. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I think it's meant to be a consolation. To I, that. I, I, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But in you know Luther's view is, but because it's it's done by someone else and it kind of takes the power away from god it's 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 putting it on these priests mm-hmm. to be in this position what if the priest is there then what happens or on the oil itself exactly yeah. and on the oil itself and of yeah. course calvin who goes even further um is like hey this uh this is one of those kind of magical pieces we can't understand it in this context um and what i think what's interesting though is Calvin does recognize, like we talked about, that oil had been used as for healing. It had been used as. Um, well, you hear, it, you see it. You know, it, it's it's something that the uh, Samaritan uses to heal the exactly. unknown victim uh, uh, in the parable of the Good yeah. Samaritan, right? Exactly. He binds, he, he pours oil, wine in it to cleanse the to cleanse the 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 wounds, and he pours oil on it to to kind of seal the, the air out of the wounds. Right. Yeah. Right. So he doesn't go after it as much as you know some some of the other more extreme reformers who are going to say, look, you know, we don't want anything but just the word. Um, images, et cetera, out of there, or even all music, right? Calvin, so, but as Calvin said, it has a biblical purpose, but it's it's really, you know, using that, um, it's a visible token of spiritual grace mm-hmm. is how he would use it. And it's the idea that while it was used as a medicine of sorts, that the emphasis here is not on what the oil did, but of what God does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and I've done that. I mean, I, you know, in my in my portable communion kit, I have a little vial of olive yeah, oil. Exactly. And, and if I'm visiting someone who's sick or 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 you know whatever, I will offer. I will say, you know, I I, I have this oil here. I'll be happy to anoint you with oil and pray for you. I, I don't. I mean, I, I do that following James five fifteen. I don't think there's anything special about the oil. I right. don't think there's anything special about my prayer. Right. It is right. it is the spirit of you know it is God. If God confers grace, it is God conferring the grace through His Spirit. You know exactly, <laughs> exactly, lives. exactly. But it's, I've had people who have have accept, accepted that, and I think it was a comfort to them. I think it exactly. It certainly can be, and. Note that if you are Presbyterian and you look at your birth, book of worship, there are there's a there's a space right there in worship for you. In the directory for worship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it definitely is not rejected. It's just making sure the understanding of it is right. Yes. That is not what what the pastor does and the pastor's conferring this grace, but rather it is the work of God, and then it's just a, another sign of prayer. Um, yeah. And uh, well, it's another sign. It's another. It's another. Uh, we we use we use you know a common element as a mm-hmm. sign exactly. of an invisible grace. Exactly. You know, right? uh, yeah. Um, reminding he, Calvin reminded us that this is a temperate, it's not a right of the church, um, and actually. Um, he was particularly critical of practicing the anointing of those near death with oil mm. and calling it a sacrament by the mm-hmm. church, um, and thought that was that was not so good. And you know, he addresses this not only in the commentaries but also in the institutes. Um, um, so this has becomes a big a big deal for both of them. Well, and you know, again, I understand how it could be comforting to someone who's grown up in that tradition, yeah. but at the same time, it almost implies a fear that. God's grace is not not sufficient in and of itself right, right, for right. us to rely on that. We need this external right. act. We need this, you know, reminder that so that we can right. trust that right. that when we die, we die in in God's grace. And also a, a fear that what well, the priest doesn't come, then we end up in purgatory. And and some of the <laughs> the some of those spaces that, um, you know, <laughs> it put, it gives too much power to pre- the priests and and. It kind of takes away God's power a little bit um, to think of that the, your your confession and your your salvation is in, in in God, not in what somebody does. Surely, yeah, surely. So anyway, I hope that's helpful to you all, and we'll come back and um, and give some concluding remarks. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Hey everybody, we are we are back, 
And during the break, I was thinking about our conversation, and I was thinking about one I had earlier this week um, with um, about Bart Ehrman. And uh, a couple of my um, folks in my congregation had invited me to a series of lectures by Bart Ehrman. And I, I wrote back, well, I think he's a brilliant scholar and has many, many interesting things to offer. I said, you know, my, my, his, my historians, my secular historians were like, I loved Bart Ehrman. It's easy to teach his things when I am in the uh, heathen university and I, I can't claim my own faith very well um, without getting in too much trouble. But then I said, my, my pastor's mind doesn't love Bart Ehrman because I feel like so much of his material is really lacking in, in faith. And um, I think, he, I think he's, he takes out a lot of what it means to be Christian and, and a call on our lives when you read his, his pieces. So it's hard for me to encourage my um, my congregation to go listen to him, um, but then again, I have to remember that uh, faith is guiding them, so that I hope they can take what is was helpful, but not be s- kind of steered the wrong direction. In my opinion, so Bart Ehrman started out in a fundamentalist right wing oh, interesting setting, and he went from one extreme to the other. To the other mm-hmm. In my humble opinion, um, he might not agree with that, but in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. So he went from a situation where the, the Bible was inerrant right. to a situation where he's pointing out all the flaws yeah. in the whole process and how the, you know, the, the canon and the critics, the textual process was all flawed. Mm-hmm. And, and I, 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 you know, I have to say, I think, uh, Ehrman has, has gone too far. In, I agree. In, I agree. In, in some of the things, some of the claims he's made about about the, the new te- the text of the New Testament, I, you know, yeah, I think the text of the New Testament is much more reliable and much more authentic than he would he would well, allow. Well, he's trying to look at it as, f- frankly, he's trying to look at it as someone who who doesn't trust in its yes. its word and. Therefore, he doesn't trust the process by which it came to be. Exactly, yeah. and so you've got a problem on your hands there. Um, well, and he has he has this idea that the winners are the ones who write history, and so he sees this as a corruption of power, you know, on the part of those who were the leaders of the early church. Whereas I see the way in which the New Testament was developed as kind of a grassroots movement, because folks like Eusebius uh, and Origen traveled around the Mediterranean world and, and sort of surveyed mm-hmm. the various air regions of, of, of the Mediterranean world in terms of what books actually right. they were what, using. What, what books are you using? Yes. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's all those. As I said, it's interesting work, but I also worry, but these are intelligent folks, that they, but they understand that, mm-hmm. that, our, that our faith, I mean, it's, I always go back to Paul, you know, it's foolish to those who don't believe. It just doesn't right. make sense. Right. Um, and if, You've been on the atheist, atheist side. It doesn't make sense at all. It's when you come to belief and see God working in the world and through you, through the scripture uh, message, then all of a sudden the pieces fall together in a way that you can't go back on. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Uh, to me, and to me, I think uh, Ehrman's work represents the work of someone who was, who was um, scarred by his experience mm-hmm. in the fundamentalist church. And we see that coming out yeah, in I his writings, so. unfortunately. I think so. as, I, as I think about the passages that we looked at today, I mean, to me, both of them have to do with how does the kingdom of God work in its life? How mm-hmm. does God's kingdom carry out its work in our lives? How does God's grace work in our mm-hmm. lives. And, you know, I, I know that Bart Ehrman, for example, um, um, does not claim to be Christian any longer. In fact, I think he disavows Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, in my mind, I always want to say, why? Why does a person disavow faith? Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I think it's because he was wounded by the fundamentalist church. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, so I tend to I tend to see God's grace as being big enough to include someone like that. I you know, I'm with you. I don't I wouldn't recommend to the average <laughs> church person to read his writings because they could be very confusing. Mm-hmm. But um you know, when it comes to how does God's kingdom do its work in our lives? How does God's grace 
do its work in our lives. I think God's grace is bigger. I agree. Than our our even it's, our theological exactly. uh, boundaries. Exactly. I I agree with that 100% and I've been I've been also, you know, while some folks like like Bart have been injured, there's an, other scholars that have come to faith mm-hmm. in the middle of their yes. scholarship. Um in in the middle of of seeing how the church operates and seeing what uh, a grace-filled church does in their lives, and all of a sudden, it's a different space. I got to, um, I got to enjoy um, Elaine Pagels not too long ago, and kind of saw her transformation from someone who was outside the church to becoming inside the church. And another, um, and she was a New Testament scholar the whole time. She was a New Testament before scholar the after. whole time, yeah, before yeah. and after. Yeah. Um, and so, what an interesting, um, it, what an interesting space. Another, another person. Um, that whose faith, um, even in his very very complex philosophy, um, Nicholas Wolterstorff. I don't know if you're familiar with I, his I, stuff. I am. Um, and and uh, again, another person of deep faith whose faith deepens even as he's going through experiences that were really hard and um, very interesting. But you know, as I've run into several of these people throughout my life, and it's interesting. Some some a bad experience, and they they spend their life kind of trying to pull apart the church and others um, who have been on the outside, all of a sudden they awaken to, mm-hmm. they awaken to faith. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, well, it's an and, interesting problem. You know, I think, again, I just think God's kingdom, God's grace is, is much bigger uh-huh. than my theology or anyone's theology right. can encompass. Right. And, and, and that's kind of what I see when I come away from these passages, you know. Um, you know, I love the fact that Mark adds the fact, you know, he says that Jesus was not able to do many deeds of power because of their unbelief, but he did heal some, he heal which some. we see, but he did do some deeds mm-hmm, of power, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's like God's kingdom has finds a way. You know, if the door is shut, it'll it'll work its way in through a crack in the window. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and and um, the same thing is true, I think, with the with the story of the sending of the twelve in Mark's gospel. Now, in, in Matthew's gospel, makes perfect sense. You don't have this whole thing mm-hmm. about the disciples and their lack of understanding. I mean, they're they're ba- they're amazed by Jesus just as much as as in as in Mark, but you don't have that whole thing about how they just don't have any recognition whatsoever. And mm-hmm. and um but in in Mark's gospel, you know, when you have that whole theme that just really is clear to me throughout the gospel of Mark that the disciples really don't get who Jesus right, is. Right. Right. Um, it's hard to really see them as as being these effective preachers of the gospel of the kingdom, right? But, but you know what? This is sorry. This is what's striking me about it is even though they don't know who he is, they still are compelled to follow him. It's not like they're falling away. That's true. You know, that reminds me of of these of these people that they're still compelled to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. I, I always. People say, well, I'm an atheist, and I, I always think philosophically, well, you already acknowledge God, God by even acknowledging right. that God doesn't exist. You can't right. even go there. The only true atheist when they have, don't even know who God is, because as soon as you ask the question of God exists, you know God exists. You've already identified God as... You're, you're already working within a structure of theism. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's kind of this, what I'm thinking here is, <laughs> is these they're still following, right? They, they don't know who he indeed. is, but they are compelled. Well, and the other thing is, is even though, as you know, as your college students have put it, they're clueless. <laughs> they're they're effective. Yes, they in are their, in in their mission. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. able to do the things that Jesus sent them out to do, and it's yeah. because they, you know, of the authority of the kingdom that is conferred right. on Jesus, and that He somehow is able to give to them. He right. sends them out with that authority. Right. And so, to to me, that's a great comfort because, as I said, you know. You know, as a as a pastor who has worked for you know, uh, I mean, I've been ordained for uh, thirty three years. You know, my my ministry has waxed and waned, and there have been plenty of times when I have just thought, you know, what am I doing? That's that's he doing any good? Yeah, and yeah. and you know, I think all of us have those times when we look at our minister and we think. 
you know, I'm just, I'm just beating my head against the wall here and it's not doing any good. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think, but I, th- I think it's, it's not about me and it's not about my effectiveness and it's not about my results. It's about, you know, I am doing my, the best I can to try to serve the kingdom of God, right. to try to, to promote the kingdom of God. And, you know, there's a little bit of, I think, a sense of co- almost confidence here that if the clueless disciples can do it, you know, <laughs> That's true. then clueless me can do right, it too. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's um, <laughs> exactly. I think, you know, as I'm thinking about the, these disciples going and they're following these specific instructions they're very specific right you know you're going out two by two you're not taking extra stuff with you you know you're gonna you're gonna have people take care of you along the road if people aren't welcoming you all the all those very specific instructions which i think um you know, I do. I have heard. You know, there's groups out there. Well, particularly the Mormons. Well, they're going to try to mimic yes, that, I send know. people out. Yeah. And I hear that other other places as well. But I I don't know that that no. we're supposed to be mimicking that at, at those all. Those were those were that was a temporary situation. A temporary, ex- exactly, yeah. exactly. But I think that's um, even in I forget whether it's Matthew or Luke. Even one of the Gospels, when Jesus does finally send them out again, he says, "Now I send you out, and you, you're to take the things you need with you." Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. But it's kind of an it's kind of an interesting um, it's kind of an interesting emphasis on God's ability as well. Even mm-hmm. with even with the least of the things possible, I can. I'm still going to work. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I'm still going to work. Yeah. And there's people that aren't going to recognize it. I'm still going to work anyway, you know. It's God's grace that exactly. does the work. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so, I, I mean, that's the theme that I think comes through all all of all the variations of interpretation we've offered today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is the clearest one. So Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.